Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hello, this is Elizabeth Osler, editor of the Mormon Women Project. And in this episode, I talk with MacArthur Krishna and Bethany Brady Spalding. MacArthur and Bethany are the co-authors of the Girls Who Choose God series and Our Heavenly Family, Our Earthly Families. They are also longtime contributors to the Mormon Women Project. In this episode, we are discussing their newest book, A Girl's Guide to Heavenly Mother. Enjoy. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for, one, agreeing to be part of this interview, and then, two, for writing such a lovely book and for continuing to put your voices and perspectives into the world. I think it's much needed, and I'm so happy knowing you guys are in the world and putting things out into the world, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's an honor honor to do this work and to share it, and it really is a joy to be able to create books, and they creep into people's bedrooms, into people's nightstands, and people's church bags, and, 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 and it's so exciting to see our words and our thoughts that we have prayerfully um, crafted together um, be part of what people are learning and thinking and dreaming and hoping about. And uh, it's, it's been a really beautiful thing. It's, it's an honor. It was actually, so we just got a message recently from this woman who said, what would my life have been like if I would have had this book as a child? Oh. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's why we do this work mm-hmm. is because we don't want 20 years from now, any other woman or man to say the same thing right? Yeah. Like let's, let's embrace the truths we have to make a difference in our lives and our world. Like this, we have this truth. Let's, let's live it. Let's learn it. Let's teach it. So it's been very satisfying to see how people have been with this, with this topic. Mm, I'm happy to hear that. I'm realizing in this moment, even though I've known both of you for years, I don't know how you two became collaborators. Oh, that's a good story. Yeah. So th- there's rumors that MacArthur and I were on BYU campus at the same time, but it's just rumors. We didn't, we didn't really know each other there, but um, mm-hmm. we bumped into each other in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. Um, when we were both working there and um, we just hit it off and there was some spark and some chemistry and we liked each other's um, creativity and also commitment to our communities. We were um, both serving in inner city wards, different ones, but neighboring wards, and we were both working in um, young women's organization. Mm-hmm. And um, we were both... Um, learning to, like loving these young women but had tremendous challenges in their lives and um, we were both recognizing at the same time that these young women didn't have role models they didn't have someone who looked like them who was living a deliberate thoughtful meaningful purposeful spiritual life or professional life or um they, just, they didn't have enough role models in their lives and macarthur and i would sit and talk about that and how can we how can we create role models because and we it, together we would have these discussion about how essential role models were people who looked like someone that they could look up to and aspire to be and to model their life after and um so we started brainstorming and all sorts of things when we were neighbors in dc and then uh, my family and i we um went on a fellowship to um a fulbright fellowship to mumbai mumbai india for a year and um I'm sure this story is, we've told this before, but um, I was reading a scripture story with my three-year-old daughter, Simone, 
And um, at the end of it, uh, she closed the book and she looked up to me and she's like, mom, where are all the stories of the girls? Mm-hmm. And of course, like I was stunned and shocked that she was so young, but still recognizing that she didn't have a role model in that book. There was no one that she looked like or that looked like her or that she could aspire to be because all the main characters and all the heroes, everyone that focused all the art was all male. And um, so of course, who am I going to call when that problem comes up? It's MacArthur, right? And lucky enough, um, even though she was still living in DC and I was in in India, uh, she was traveling to India for a conference for the first TED conference that was happening in India. This was in 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've just celebrated our decade of being collaborators. Um, And she came to visit and I said, MacArthur, we have to do something about this. You know, we can't, um, we need these stories of faithful, courageous, bold, extraordinary women. And we have them in our scriptures. We have them in our church history. We have um, the Heavenly Mother. We have all these remarkable women that we need to be creating and sharing stories about them. And um, so MacArthur, as she always says, was like, let's do it. Um, so that, that, that's how we became collaborators, right, MacArthur? Yes, that and um, Bethany's daughter, who by this time was three and a half, maybe. Um, not yet, not even yet three, not yet three, almost three. Well, she wanted to learn how to pick out shoes. So <laughs> we launched the girls, um, the girls who choose God series was born in this kind of, you know, few days in Mumbai, India. And I taught Simone how to decide which pair of shoes matched an outfit. Right. And those were the two, you know, vital things that we tackled that weekend. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I don't do fashion. I, I, I write books, but I don't do fashion. MacArthur does both. She writes books and she does fashion. So she's, yeah, she's no. I have three girls. She's taken over that department for my family. Thank goodness. Cute uh, shoes, cute shoes. But, you know, I come from kind of a community organizer and um, community activist background and, um, and like to solve problems and like to come up with new programs and policies to um, address needs. And, and MacArthur came from a storytelling background and also a, a deep commitment to social justice and making the world a better place. So we were like, let's, let's use our talents and our gifts and our backgrounds and our, these questions that have arisen before us and these young women and these, now these daughters in our lives. And let's, let's do something to, to solve this problem. Um, and it's been fun. It's been a decade long journey. Um, you know, we then from that brief visit in India, then we've lived, we've never lived almost on the same hemisphere. Um, and we've always been swapping and moving. And so this um, is the first time in 10 years we've been in the same hemisphere not in the same time zone we're still three hours off right but even just the same uh hemisphere wow right right how about that so MacArthur where are you these days I'm in Portland Oregon because I was outside of India when corona hit and I couldn't get back into India okay so we came to USA okay but the fun yeah. thing about um, this, actually, the Girl's Guide to Heavenly Mother was the first Wait, book. Wait, we should pause for a second. So over 10 years, this is now we've done six books. Ooh, so yeah. that's a lot. That <laughs> is a lot. Um, but the Girl's Guide was the first book we actually wrote um, face-to-face. Uh, my family mm-hmm. last year was on a around-the-world sabbatical. And um, we got to go to MacArthur's farm in rural India. And um, we sat in this gorgeous farm with peacocks and kids running around and we sat together and, and the ideas were 
forming this guidebook came together where you know I was traveling and seeing these beautiful places on the planet MacArthur was had this long history of traveling and so that's where the idea for a guidebook came about where um, we thought like let's let's we love lonely planets we love guides that help us navigate new terrain and help us discover beautiful things and, and give us recommendations and tips and 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 lists and bullet points and we thought you know, with this wealth of information we had about Heavenly Mother, um, we thought the guidebook would be a great format to put that all together as a, as a resource for people as they're navigating this new beautiful truth. Not a new truth, but um, it's a, it seems like a new season of people ready to, to go exploring. Absolutely. And a new book. There are not materials for children to teach this topic. So even though it's not a new truth, it is a new idea. Yeah. Yeah, and a new platform. And that actually answers one of the questions that I had is that your, um, you know, the Girls Who who Choose God series had a very specific format that you followed. And so it was so surprising to open this one and be like, wait, this is a completely different. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> I was like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> yep, yep. And then it was well, we also knew. I did have a moment of like, is this a, a MacArthur? And <laughs> <laughs> Well, so there's two things that were significantly different, right? So yeah. one of them is that Bethany's three-year-old is now 13. And so she has developed spiritual muscles and needs different stuff, right? She has different questions. Yeah. She has different um, experiences in the world. Her body's going through different changes, right? And so one, our audience of the Girls Who Choose God audience had grown up in a lot of ways, sure. right? And so yeah. we're, we're, we're talking to that tween age. and and all of us really, right? I mean, of all ages, but that was where we were, we were kind of launching from. And on the other side of it, we love Kathy Peterson. She is a marvelous human being as well as artist. And so she's obviously um, painted all of the fine art for the Girls Who Choose God series. Yeah. But we're also really clear that having a canonized one image, one style of Heavenly Mother is wrong in my mind. So the reason we have art is to be expansive. It like good art expands your brain. Good art expands what you think about. Good art unlocks things in you that were locked before. Good mm -hmm. art opens. And so from our standpoint, instead of having just one canonized set of art that framed Heavenly Mother in a very narrow way, it was really important to us that we had Kathy Peterson present. As you can see, her artwork is on the title page because, you know, we, we owe all to Kathy. Um, right. But then we just blew it out and we got artists from all over the world so that they could portray art, um, what their, um, their love and meaningful idea of Heavenly Mother would look like to them, right? Um, and that felt important. Yeah, that was one of the things that I really appreciated about this book is that there's so many different from abstract to even pictures you know artistic interpretations using female humans in you know that broad spectrum to of what Heavenly Mother could look like and I thought about how interesting it is that because she hasn't been canonized in that way or that there isn't this specific image that we have to fight against or challenge as we do with um, Heavenly Father and of course with Jesus Christ that there's something really lovely as you're saying in that 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 we can really imagine her in the way in which speaks or resonates the most to us for me yeah. it was the one on page 40 
That was the one I loved the most. It was really hard. But when I came to 40, I was like, this is the one I love the most. Because it's really, there's like a, um, who's the artist on that one? It's Sharon Villana Castian, Castan, Santo? Yeah. Just the colors and like, there's like a. So what's so great about this conversation is every conversation we have about this, someone has a different one. I love it. And so 40 is your page because you love that one. But I can tell you, like, I've had probably a dozen other conversations and they're like, no, this one. Okay, no, this one. This, this is the one that is just so meaningful for me, right? And that's exactly, in my mind, the definition of success, right? right? So it doesn't look like the same kind of brand that we've done with the Girls Who Choose God, but it did exactly what it needed to do, where people get to have their own emotional reaction, their own connection to the very widely varied art. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's and fun. This, it's fun to hear that. What, what, what strikes you about this, this particular one? What do you love? What, what resonates? I, so there's the nature, like their bodies almost look like leaves mm -hmm. to me. And so I love that. I love how colorful it is. I love that there's also different colored skin tones and things in it. I so love that they're looking. kind of nesting together. That yeah. This, and like, I do love that. It's like this, like, yeah, exactly. Like they're all being, and like they're all holding each other too. Mm -hmm that I think is just lovely. Isn't yeah. that great? Everyone gets to pick something different. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one, which I can't remember what page it is now, but it's, um, oh, here it is. I just happened to it on 23, Lisa DeLong, where it's the, it's more it's abstract. So you've got that, what, I love nature. So the things with the nature clearly are <laughs> resonating. But like, I feel like this is like, um, shows like, when I, when I saw this picture, I thought, oh, there's me and Heavenly Mother in the pre-existence talking about counseling, getting ready to come down. Mm -hmm. Isn't that beautiful? So Lisa's marvelous. She teaches um, Islamic art mm. and like this sacred geometry. And so what I love about that is having Heavenly Mother be part of sacred geometry, being a mathematician, you know, being part of the, the, um, the theories of the universe, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was glad to have uh, that Lisa agreed to participate in this. So how can did I, you select these artists? Well, oh, yeah. Okay. So yes, we have to talk about MacArthur's holy harassing skills to get all these artists. <laughs> yeah. And also, it, uh, whether it's now or whether it's after that MacArthur, I feel really impressed to talk about um, you know the current moment that we're in and um, why having, a, like you said, there's multiple skin tones, why that yeah. matters so much. You know, yeah. that I, Living in Richmond, Virginia, the heart mm -hmm. of the Confederacy and the and the you know the center of the Atlantic um, slave trade, like the, um, I've you know been in the midst of this this last week, and and is issues of of skin tone and of uh, multiracial is so so important. So um, can we we can dive into that now, or do Mark Carthy, do you want to talk about how you got all the artists, and then we dive into that? No, either way, it's uh, that's important. Yeah, and I and I'm so glad you brought that up because that was definitely on my list of things like I want to talk about that here because it's so beautifully represented in this book. So let's actually put a pin in it and circle back to it because I'd like to get a little bit more groundwork so that we can great really dive into that. But I definitely want to dive into that. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah, how did you? Um, yeah, I um, so just to give some kind of framework around this, um, I'm married to an Indian. I have brown-skinned daughters. Mm -hmm. um, in my immediate um, family of origin, I have nieces and nephews from Haiti. 
I have nieces and nephews who are half Hawaiian. I have nieces and nephews who are Native American, right? Like the, the, our family really represents um, a wide range of heavenly parents family. And if you believe that heavenly parents are the parents of the entire earth, then there is no one look that, that has the corner on what Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother should or do look like, right? And so for me, it was really important that I had a book that I could hand off to all of my friends and all of my family that, that they felt they were in, right? So mm -hmm. I'm living in India, Bethany's traveling all over the world, like these sisters and brothers of ours all over the world need to look at this and be like, yes, I am loved by my Heavenly Mother. I mean, that's the bottom line of the book. People need to get to the end of that and think, I am beloved. So for me, it was really, really important that we did this. And so I started digging around and trying to find artists. And luckily, the LDS Church does a, every three years, they do an art competition. And, um, and so I got online, uh, bless the people who decide to also do this online, because I'm living in rural India and pages load really slowly mm. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> right, like, like pixel by pixel I'm getting like artwork right and I'm trying to get through hundreds of pieces of art um and then we started narrowing down and narrowing down and I'd shoot one over to Bethany what about this one how do you think about this what do you think about this one and the great thing about that is I love artists I actually love working with visually creative people and no matter how many times we asked an artist to do something based on what our head thought they would come up with because I'd seen their body of work phew, it was total roulette. Well, where whether it actually end up looking like their previous body of work, right? Mm. And so that was the fun. Also, when people would start sending us things in, I'd be like, I never predicted that one, right? <laughs> and so, getting the art to come in, getting the range of artists, talking to artists all over the world. Some of the artists don't speak English. I don't speak every language on the planet. And so, trying to make sure that we had this really robust and wide net that we cast. And then, as the art started coming in that we had such a wide range of look and feel um, that it was just really, um, it was a design challenge to try to make yeah. it all hold together. But we were so deeply pleased to have everyone's contribution. And so was the art created for the book? Or oh yeah. Them? Oh wow. Oh, there, was, um, there was one piece of art that was one, I think. I think there's only yeah. one that already existed. Okay. That we got to the person and said, this, we want this. Um, all the other art was specifically created for this book, partially because we also wanted to blow out the canon. There sure. has not been a lot of visual access to images of Heavenly Mother, and we wanted to just like skyrocket that number. Like we wanted to make sure that forevermore, if someone was interested in an image of Heavenly Mother, that they had a, a wide myriad to choose from. So we actually have the 27 artists for this book. Um, there's only three artists that overlap between the boys guide and the girls guide. And then we have a whole new set of 24 more artists. Again, one of them already existed. All the others newly created for the book. So you end up with more than 50 pieces of brand new art that depict Heavenly Mother. Um, and that was really exciting because once we'd finished the girls guide, people started pinging me artists asking about being in the girls guide or the boys guard, or could they be part of this, which was so satisfying that, that people saw their talents and wanted to be part of this beautiful truth right and so that was a very lovely lovely unexpected thing 
even MacArthur had so many spiritual, profound spiritual experiences reaching out to certain artists where, um, I mean, these are your stories to tell, but you know how an artist had just prayed the night before that she could somehow use her gifts mm -hmm. to, to share the knowledge of Heavenly Mother. And the next day, MacArthur out of nowhere gets in touch with her and extends this invitation, you know, or an yeah. artist who, um, you know, first felt like she couldn't do it, but then she and her husband had this deeply stirring inspiration and personal yeah. revelation that she needed to do this work and that they would rearrange their entire family schedule for her to create this body of work. And, and, um, so it, it was a, it was a spiritual, exciting, exhilarating process. And, um, and it feels like, um, yeah, that this is just a wave that now, I mean, you know, MacArthur and I, and in a book that actually we wrote in between our girls who choose God series and his book on heavenly mother, um, was a book about heavenly families. And, um, mm -hmm. we had Caitlin Connolly do the cover and the artwork for the book. And yeah. that was actually the first piece of artwork about heavenly mother and heavenly parents that the church purchased and now hangs in the church history museum. And is uh, it the one that's so, on the cover? Um, so there's actually two pieces of art. So the church purchased a sketch that Caitlin mm -hmm. had planned to do for the cover. Then she did the cover for Desert Book for the book. And then the church commissioned Caitlin, and that was small. I mean, like 24 inches or something. I don't know the exact dimensions. But then the church got a hold of Caitlin and commissioned her to do a 12-foot by 8-foot painting that hangs now on Temple Square. Oh, wow. And so at the Church History Museum, if you go to the top of the stairs, there's this massive painting of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and all of their children. And so that was the first image that the church bought, um, the original sketch, and the genesis of this massive piece of art that's joined the body of the church's work, which is incredible. There's some slight differences between the paintings, the one on the book that people are wearing all white, the one, the, the larger size one, they have um, some tonal differences but it's um it's obviously the same oh, um, composition wow. but that so that piece was the first and it seems like it also just opened up the floodgates where now so many artists um i feel the feel inspired to to create these images of heavenly mother and and it feels like they're just they're just um swelling up and spreading and then they're gorgeous and spectacular and so varied and so inspiring if you get on instagram you search like heavenly mother or heavenly mother art it's just like, dung, 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 dung. I mean, it just, there's, it's just it scroll on and on and on, right? And some of it is from our books, you know, and a chunk of it is not. And it is so exciting. That's very exciting. I want there to be an exhibit of this. So, I can go so to as a matter of fact, this <laughs> November um, at Written Vision in Provo, Utah, from November 6th through December, there will be a Hemley Mother Art exhibit. Oh, amazing. That's it was really planned for funny. May, but it got, you know, slaughtered. It got COVID. So yeah, for um, the first Friday stroll, the art stroll that happens in Provo, the first Friday of every month, um, that Heavenly Mother art will hang. Um, it won't be all the paintings from the two books, but it'll be the majority of them. Um, and like I said, like over probably between 40 and 50 pieces of art will hang all on Heavenly Mother. Uh, Bethy and I will be there for November 6th. That's exciting. So, yeah. That's wonderful. And I do want to point out that your artwork is at the end of the girl's guide. That you well, because we need a place. So this is Bethany being like, you did the art. You should put it in there. And I'm like, I'm yes. not taking up with great art. She's like, we're putting your art in. This is like a, a cross continental like arm wrestle, right? And Bethany won that it goes. Glad she did. 
but I wanted to go, I was like tucked in the back on the dedication page so that, you know. We all needed a little personal art, you know, like, I mean, I love all the artists, but to be biased, my two daughters, renditions of Heavenly Mother are really cool. <laughs> okay, I was going to say that too. Actually, that was marked, like, the children, and, um, because MacArthur, your daughter has one yeah. in there too, right? This was a last minute edition. I think like I went and dug through some boxes in the attic and found these in like old church bags and notebooks and ripped them out. Yeah. And, but I just, I loved, like I wear glasses um, and when I go to church, so I just see farther. And I just, I just love that my daughter put Heavenly Mother with glasses. I was like, I was going to get that out. I was, I totally noticed it. And it was one of my most favorite things. I'm like, I you have glasses. You have awesome glasses. Glasses is yes. my most favorite. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have fabulous red glasses. So yes, I just, I love it. And again, it's yeah. this idea of seeing ourselves and our family reflected in Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Mother reflected in us. And I just, I love how this new generation just see it and feel it and express it. And yeah. So that was fun. If, if I find that piece uh, under the bed again, I'll send it to you. Okay. I'll send you a signed copy. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, I appreciate that. So real quick, I want to pull it back one more time and then we can keep Diving in. Is, Sorry, we get carried away. No, <laughs> this is so lovely. I mean, that is the definition of that people who get carried away. Three of us. Why do you feel like it was time slash necessary to have a book about Heavenly Mother in particular? And I know you touched upon this a little bit about like, you know, needing that role model and those types of things. But why now and why, why this topic? I think there's lots of reasons. I'll start with some and then MacArthur follow up with others. Um, we think it's needed on the micro level as well as the macro level. But on the micro level for like individuals, um, there was a woman in my stake that said to me, like she said her daughter, who's about 10 years old, said to her, mom, why do you always get angry when I ask you about Heavenly Mother? And she was just so shocked by that where it wasn't anger that she was expressing. She was, it was just uncertainty and not knowing what to share. And, you know, as the young women theme, the general young women theme was changed last fall to include, um, you know, declaring that we are beloved daughters of heavenly parents. And so now, of course, young girls, now that we get to articulate this in our worship services, now, of course, young women are going to be thinking about our heavenly parents and are, you know, I think the questions and the wondering it's um, spurring up and we wanted to create a guide and a resource for parents to be able to say like, this is what we know. And we know so much and we know prophets and apostles and church leaders have said this. And so um, we wanted to help, um, you know, all of our work, we've tried to fill a need, something that avoid or something that wasn't there. And this, we felt like we need to compile all, not all of this because there's even, there's so many, so many quotes from general church leaders about Heavenly Mother, but um, let's compile some of them into a way that's accessible for, for parents to use as a tool to um, share this beautiful, cherished doctrine with their with their girls. So that, that's one reason that the time of the young women's theme and needing to have more material for that. Um, but let's tag team, MacArthur, you go to the next one. It's past time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. So, Maybe um, it's pastime. Mm -hmm. Doctrine of Heavenly Mother eradicates hogwash in a number of really important ways. And the more you live and look around, the more you should be delighted by the world because it's a marvelous place. And the more you should say, there's some, some things that are absolutely unacceptable. And I think with the um, Black Lives Matter, we're very clear as a society about 
that no longer being acceptable. And it's never been acceptable, of course, right? But it's now hit the front page of all the news Mm -hmm. and of our lives, which is good. But I think how women are treated is also never been acceptable. It has never been acceptable to treat women the way they're treated in this world. And that is from a very personal, small relationship standpoint, all the way up to the biggest societies and governments, right? And it's easy to point fingers in places like where I have been living in India, where it seems the most egregious, but it's also completely true in our own societies here. And frankly, I expect better from people who are taught the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So recently they released a report from BYU about how women do not speak nearly as often as what men do. And when women speak, the comments that come back to them from their male colleagues are often negative, undercutting, derogatory, and contradictory. So, our own society needs a recast. If men and women all saw men and women as their spiritual equals, as their peers, as the model that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother give us, right? If we saw that spiritual model as the model and the way the earth works as a fallen state, then we would move towards that divine model. So when you can talk about Heavenly Mother and you can quote prophets and apostles, because Bethany and I were very careful, there's not speculation in here, there's not fun extrapolation. I mean, there's all sorts of fun things to think about with Heavenly Mother, but none of that is in this book. Because what we wanted was a book that we felt was absolutely solid doctrine. What do we know from prophets and apostles? And when you only take those resources, you have solid footing about how Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father work and what their roles are. And for me, once you have that kind of understanding, then all of this earthly nonsense about disrespecting women is cleared out. It is absolutely apparent that to be divine You have to work as a team with your spouse. And that to me is so, um, such a bold challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a bold challenge for our marriages. It's a bold challenge for our workplaces. It's a bold challenge for our institutions. Like if we know our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are a team, what does that mean for every other place, right? And so for my thinking, it's, um, it's so important. It is so important to use truth to, to lift the world to a more divine place. Amen. Whew. Yeah. We can just wrap up. That, that, was it. that was it. That was. Yeah. And I really appreciate MacArthur, you being very candid and forthright in that because I, I couldn't agree with you more. And through even my own lived experiences and the things that I have observed of how crucial it is that we, that we really understand that this is not a lovely idea, that this is doctrine. And that, and that what that means is, is that this is reality as well. 
And that, you know, in um, President Nelson's letter that he put out in response to the protests that are happening where, where he was saying, you know, if you are practicing or have, you know, done any type of prejudice, I'm paraphrasing here, you must repent and use the exclamation part, point. I feel mm -hmm. like that same kind of energy here, that if you are in any way causing um, a lack of dignity and not treating people with equality, then there is a call for repentance there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But and I think um, what's so key here is that our understanding of God shapes how we treat ourselves and how we treat others, right? And I think um, you know a term that's been used a lot over the last week is white supremacy, mm -hmm. and it's an uncomfortable word. It's a really uncomfortable word. But as I've um, I've been thinking about it and reflecting on it, actually, our neighborhood is starting a book group um, where we're reading a book, White Supremacy and Me, and having mm -hmm. some dialogue. And um, you know, when you unpack that word, it's like, what is um, supremacy and supreme and I've been thinking a lot about when we refer to God as a supreme being mm. and I think you know as, as the world and as Christians mostly have thought of God as white and male you know, that's what we see as supreme yeah and so I, I, I know that this is this is a little edgy but I, I really feel like um, in in perpetuating and insisting on God the supreme being of all creation being white and male that has festered and fostered some of these, these hurtful and damaging things. And I, so I feel like this book comes at this time where we are expanding the nature of God to be male and female working together. And yes, um, above like transcending race and transcending skin color. And um, I think it's really, really, really powerful of how, um, you know, and, you know, President Nelson urged us to pray and to come up with ways how we can be part of the solution. And I, for me, it's embracing this expansive, this fuller, fuller more true, more doctrinal view of God um, is really fundamental to dismantling white supremacy. Yeah. There's a quote that says, if God is male, then male is God. And I think the same, I posted recently about this and said, and if God is white, then white is God. White, right. And so for us, when we are going through and getting this wide range of artists, it was so vitally important that we had Polynesian, Native American, African, African American, uh, Cambodian, Asian. I mean, like we, we really um, rounded out because we thought it was so important that, that as Bethany said, like we as artists uh, and as authors, um, still live in an earthly world. You know, we have not transcended race. Our society has not transcended race. But we should be clear about what we're perpetuating. And so for us, it was vitally important that what Bethany and I perpetuate was something that was as um, um, expansive and inclusive as what we could make it. Understanding that we, as Bethany said, like our heavenly parents, I, we don't, I think are beyond race, right? Um, but they're not beyond loving all the races of their children, right? And so the more that we can perpetuate love of the races and between races, then the better work we're doing. Yeah, this reminds me of um, one of the things that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about in his book, The Dignity of Difference, is mm. he takes the story of the Tower of Babel and he and he interprets it in in you know there's the the story that how we got the languages and things like that and he's like yes and and that the and was really powerful for me and i feel like it's very relevant in this is, is he says the sin that was being 
um, perpetrated in that moment as they were all unifying to build up to God is that they were trying to become one in similarity. And that part of the, the, of the breaking down of the tower was a reminder of the difference is intentional. Hmm, and that God wants those differences and that those, and that it is, that it is in the difference that we find our dignity and our divinity. Wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Tell me mm-hmm. his name again. I want to read that. That's um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Well, so my father's a biologist and he taught us a lot about um, loving the natural world. And if you know anything about the natural world, you understand that ecosystems don't survive if they're homogeneous, mm-hmm. right? That you must have diversity in an ecosystem for it to function and flourish. And so I think that if you look at the natural world, that obviously was created with our heavenly parents, you know, inspiration and divinity and sanction and touch on, that it would be no surprise that their, their, their human creations were as diverse as their trees and fauna and flora and, you know, the other things that we can see as we look around. Because you find beauty in Bryce and that's your sole place. Right. I was driving down the road the other day and the sun was coming through these trees in the exact shade of gold green that looks like home to me. Mm. And to me, like the beauty of West Virginia forests, which is different than the beauty of mountain forests or pine forests, which I apologize, but that color of like brown gray <laughs> dinge just does not do it for me. And so like going somewhere where you have this like glorious gold green of home, that to me yeah. is my soul, right? Yeah. And so I think appreciating even just, if you just look around between those two very different places between Bryce Canyon and deciduous forests of West Virginia, you know, you've already got a hint of the range of what this natural world can, you know, the, the value of diversity, right? And how grateful I am to, to this time, as challenging as this time has been with the pandemic and the protests. And, and I do think that that the energy around this protest in some ways has been fueled by the stressor of the pandemic that really, but there is this, the fact that the, that it is forcing these conversations and that these conversations are being had and in a way that appears and I hope means that people are really listening, that we can even um, address some of these systemic issues is, is encouraging and I think having conversations like this and I really appreciate one of the things that I'm learning from both of you in this moment is that how we interpret God really impacts how I behave and treat my fellow humans right so going back to understanding that there is a mother and in fact in this so I want to um, read a quote from your book Um, because when I was reading through it so it's by Rosemary Card when she says heavenly mother isn't taking a break while her kids are away at school heavenly mother spends her day and night serving us she mourns with us she comforts us she encourages us she strengthens us she actively plays a crucial role in the plan of salvation she matters and because she matters i and all of her daughters matter and I was thinking about that in terms of um, this moment where, where there's just so much pain and anxiety and stress that I feel like we all just need a cosmic hug from our heavenly mother. Like I've thought about times, even as a grown adult, where I'm like, all I want to do right now is crawl in my mom's bed and just have her hold me. 
um, right? That there's this, mm -hmm. this need, I think a human need to feel comfort and that, um, and that we seek that from maternal sources. And so knowing that so we, um, like I said, yeah. the most of the book is um, prophets, apostles, and church leaders. And beyond those, I think we only use three quotes that were not prophets, apostles, and female church leaders from, you know, modern times. And Rosemary Card's one of those, um, because it's such a powerful and beautiful idea. It's such a true idea that it seemed like it was, um, that it was worth putting in the book, even though it was spoken from someone who was, you know, did not carry the, um, the, the mantle of authority of the official church, right? Yeah. Um, but it carried truth. Yes. And Liz, I'm actually so glad you've read that because, you know, what, how does that culminate? This, it crescendos into she matters. She matters. I matter. Her daughters matter. Like, and that is the, the moment we are in of Black Lives Matter. It's matter. Like, daughters yeah. matter. You know, like this is, this is where we are defining who we are and who's important and what's important. And, and um, so it's, it's fascinating that that ties right into where we are right now, that, that we all matter. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking that, you know, even before the protest and this pandemic, you know, I've reflected a lot about, you know, the world will look different moving forward. We are going to have to piece back the world and hopefully it will look better in, in you know, there's many struggles and hard things, but I believe we have this opportunity to, to piece back the world together in beautiful and better ways, you know, yeah. environmentally or in, in the time we spend as families, the things we prioritize, the thing, you know, many, there are many powerful opportunities that arise here. But um, I think on race and gender, now with the sweeping moment of the protest, these racial issues, we have, the, we have the chance to really put the world together in new ways. And I feel like as Latter-day Saints, we have tools and resources to do that. Um, you know, and, and Heavenly Mother is, is a profound, life-changing theology. We have the theology to do it, not just the tools and resources, but the theology to put the world back together in a better, more vibrant, more enlivening um, way. And so... Well, I, and I, we should be clear. So Valerie Hudson's research shows mm -hmm. that societies who follow a more closely divine pattern, right? A divine pattern of treating women and men as equal partners who do that officially. They have lower rates of disease, lower rates of war, higher levels of education, higher, more number um, people live longer you know, higher lifespan. And so to me, it makes perfect sense. So when a society chooses to follow a divine model, the society is more likely to flourish. Hmm. It makes sense. It really does. So as we have this opportunity with both how we treat women and how we have Black Lives Matter and all colors, right? Um, that how we treat each other as brothers and sisters, as children of a female and male deity, like if our societies reflect this, the societies are more likely to flourish. One of the things that as we, as I prepared to go into this year of studying the Book of Mormon, of what, thinking about the Book of Mormon and what it means to me and, and lessons from it, and one of the things I thought about, and I've been thinking a lot about through this Black Lives Matter movement as well, is that it's also a cautionary tale of genocide. Like what happens when we let pride and we let difference and, well, not difference, but tribalism take over, right? And then we, and we, and we don't build a society over, you know, rooted in divinity and divine order that what ends up happening is, is genocide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's plenty of examples of that, not just in the Book of Mormon, but in, in our world history. And so I agree with you as Latter-day Saints, we have 
um, additional resources and, and theology to help create a different system. Because I think that that's part of the thing that I've really come to understand too, is that the system isn't broken. The system's working the way it was designed to work. Mm. And so mm. that we need, we need new systems. Yes. And how do we, you know, become part of that change and participate in, in, and lending a voice to, to what that looks like so that, so that it is, you know, rooted in, in, in equality and, and in humanistic. Um, and frankly, watching Mitt Romney, Matt, March Amen. with Black Lives Matter was so, was so deeply moving, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that someone would say, my values show me how I should act in this moment. Right. Right. And because I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then I know that everyone around me is my brother and sister, and I will act accordingly, right? Yeah. And I think all of us, all of us have that knowledge. It's just whether or not we live it, breathe it, vote it, et cetera. I know. I was so thrilled to see that, too. And um, a few days ago, I joined a, a gathering of interfaith leaders um, here in Richmond um, for a peaceful, for a prayer vigil and then for a march um, in our, right down our Monument Avenue where all the Confederate statues um, are elevated in our city. And um, it was powerful. There were, um, we had many African-American preachers and pastors um, praying. And um, it, several of them said, you know, we are at the moment that people, my people have been praying for for not just years, not just, not just decades, for centuries, we've prayed for this moment um, where we are ready to embrace equality. Like, and, that, and, said, and you people right here, like, and the, the community of faith, this is, we have to answer their prayers. This is our time. This is, um, you know, they, we can't wait anymore. And um, it was really beautiful. And, but then also another pastor reminded us that it was Christians who built these monuments to the lost cause. It was, it was Christian who, um, you know, 50 years after the civil war raised these monuments, um, of people who didn't think of African-Americans as, as fully human. And, um, you know, so it was Christians that did this and now we as Christians need to dismantle it. And, um, it was, it was powerful to be reminded that we as a faith community need to be engaged in this. And I was, yeah, I was thrilled to see Mitt Romney join other faith leaders, um, in this March and that he crossed over political lines and he was the first Republican to, to march. Mm -hmm. Or the first, I should say, Republican senator to march. Um, but yes, it was it was thrilling to see that yeah, we should all step over lines. We should all cross over boundaries to um, to, to do this work. It's important. Um, and I just love. I I think a lot about the idea of fullness. Um, that in the we, we often use the phrase the fullness of the gospel. Um, but MacArthur and I like to think about that phrase. When you think about fullness, that needs to include, you know, we've only been talking about half of God, right? If, if we really have this theology that God is Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother together, then we haven't been talking about the fullness of God. We've been talking about half, right? Um, and um, so let's, let's use the fullness of the gospel to meet these challenges, to rise to the occasion and, um, and share all of this love. And I, Liz, I totally agree, like this big Heavenly Mother hug, you know, as a, yeah. as a healer, as a, as a lover of, you know, wanting her, you know, as a mother, I spend most of my days trying to get my kids to get along. You know, really, that, that's what I do, right? Yeah. Can't you see Heavenly Mother doing the same thing? I was like, come on, kids, are you still arguing over this? Like, are you really still like, ah, um, so I, 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 I've prayed for Heavenly Mother's, um, you know, intervention in this critical time. Yeah. 
And, and in that, I, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because I have, and, and I think it's just because like wanting that comfort, but also, you know, those moments when my, when my mom, you know, my earthly mom has been like, Hey, Liz, like what you're doing, not okay. And you need to step it up. You know, like, I think we also need that, you know, from like someone like, I deeply love you and what you're doing here is not okay. And I, and I really appreciate, you know, the things that you guys are pointing out. And I think it's also um, behooves us to also say that our own history as members of the Church of Jesus Christ is fraught with, with racial issues. And that, you know, and, and that we have seen the church start to take some steps in that with the, was it B1? I can't remember exactly what they called it, that celebration that they did. You know, and I feel like, I think it's important that remember that that was just a beginning of a much larger conversation and, and reconciliation that we do need to have as a culture and as a people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And I am. Um, oh, that, uh, yes, I, I do feel like I, I had, um, a, there's a young woman of color in my ward here in Richmond and uh, her mom reached out to me and just said, she's struggling. Like, like, what do we do is like, she wants to be engaged in this issues and, and, mm-hmm. what do we do? And um, she wants to share it with the young women in our ward. And how can we not just give lip service to what can we really do? And my first answer was, I think we need to have a really honest and frank conversation about our history and about how you know, we now have um, been made clear statements that, that, that um, things that were taught by church leaders on the issues of race were not true and, and that yeah. we should not embrace those anymore. And even though they're in the printed versions of our Come Follow Me manual right now, um, I think we, a first step that we need to take is that disavowing that and knowing that those have been um yes have been stated to be that that is not what we believe that is not what we think god believes and um i think so having those hard conversations is really important but uh, i mean it's that they're really difficult but very important yeah and one of the things i love about your book is that it's it is a guide right and that there are and it's broken into sections so there's the beginning where it's like this is heavenly mother and here's some things to know about her and here's some things to know about you and that the last part of the book really is a call for i like to because i'm an advocate that that it really right that, that there is a call for advocacy and that you have parts that is like so now that you know these things about heavenly mother and you know who you are in relation to her you know, that you are loved by her and that you are, as a woman, a goddess in training that, or making is what you, the language oh, I like training too. Training is great. Yeah. 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 Um, is, you know, that, that then that means then there's also some work to do. And so how are President you- Nelson has asked the women of the church to step in. Right. So if you are following the prophet, the prophet has said, step into the world and make a difference. And so in my mind, this is just um, following that adage mm-hmm. that when you have truth, you have to live it. It's not just truth in your brain that you go hide, you know, putting your light under a bushel kind of idea. You live your truth. And so if we're asking people to live their truth and asking people to step into the world, then part of the fullness, as Bethany was talking about, was what does this truth, how does this truth matter in our lives and in our world? Absolutely. So I'm actually going to turn one of your questions back on you. Uh-oh. Oh, no. So you say, because it's just like we're right here in this moment when with um, Create Change number four about throughout the whole world, houses knowledge. And so one of the questions you asked, which I think is a very provocative question to ask and a brave question to ask, which is in what other ways would the world be better if we honored our Heavenly Mother 
and all of her daughters. What can you do to help? So how do you, how do you two personally answer that question? You go first, MacArthur. Um, so I've been living the last eight years in India. Mm -hmm. And one of, um, and you hit India, right? And so I was, I had, I had owned a business and uh, was living in DC when I, not abruptly, but still it, it felt like a, a whiplash, mm -hmm. um, moved to India. And so then I was looking around trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do with myself. And um, I started working with a women's co-op there. And for me, there's both systemic things you can work on and there's just on the ground person to person things. And so for me, it was important to do person to person things and how I teach my children. Number one, you know, number two, working with this women's co-op group and then being able to make a little bit of extra money because if they make a little extra money and they can afford a cell phone, they get more respect in their family and getting more respect in your family changes uh, what your dowry can be and who you marry and how you get treated the rest of your life. So teaching a woman how to drive a car, you know, changes what her opportunities are in life. Lots of, the vast majority of Indian women where I live did not drive a car. And so um, for me, doing some one-on-one -on -one work where I got to change people's trajectories um, because of how I could kind of almost like put a little pebble in their, in their river flow, right? And also the, the river flows differently. And then there's systemic things like writing this book, right? And so if you see things on big scale um, that also need to shift, then there's things you can do on that front as well. And so for us to um, spur the creation of art, to spur the previous book, the Heavenly Family, Earthly Families book, and then this one um, is a chance for us to, to continue to lay out truths. Um, um, I would share, you know, when, like I mentioned that I my family was in India um, when we were writing this book and right before we came to MacArthur's farm and began the writing process, uh, my family had spent some time volunteering with an organization called Yua and Yua is in another part of India um, that has some of the highest rates of human trafficking of girls and of child marriage. And um, this organization was started um, to get girls playing soccer so that they would, you know, become bold and confident and um, start doing new things and really elevate their aspirations for themselves. And, but the, um, and it, we had a blast. It was phenomenal. Um, and we got to have a lot of conversations with these young girls. But the kind of the motto of the organization is when girls know their worth, they're limitless. Their potential is limitless and their, their future is limitless. And I just, that was, I found that really profound. You know, if girls know their worth, there's no stopping them, right? And I think sharing the doctrine of Heavenly Mother gives girls and women just a deeper sense of their worth and their limitless potential. Um, you know, and, and we see this so much, um, just that something just popped into my head is that um, because my husband's, husband is a professor, uh, we've lived in lots of cities where a lot of LDS couples come for graduate school. Mm. And um, it's been fascinating as I've met lots of them and um, the husband's pursuing some degrees and has a big career in mind and passionate and exciting. And so many of the women I've talked to are like, I don't know what I like. I don't know what I want to do. I don't really, I don't, uh, I'm a little bit self-effacing and just, da, da, da. and I you know, remember um, when we were living in Chicago, I was in the Relief Society presidency 
and um, I was asked to just teach a lesson on anything I felt was important. Um, and I decided I want to teach on Heavenly Mother. And this was right after my third daughter was born, and it was right in 2011 when the article of Mother There, uh, the BYU Studies article, had come out and had you know, this compilation of all of these quotes about Heavenly Mother. And I gave this lesson um, in our Relief Society, and it was like, it was like everybody changed walking out of there. Um, mm -hmm. It was like lights went off, and and possibilities opened and you know that was eight years I mean, nine years ago now and people still reach out to me about how much that impacted them and how they thought of themselves differently after that lesson and i mean it's a small thing but i feel like as we teach are the truth of heavenly mother girls know their worth and that opens up infinite possibilities and opportunities and then I also think as we know our worth and, and love and, and embrace ourselves, we treat each other better too, right? We treat other people better. And so I, I hope to make the world more beautiful through heavenly, the knowledge of Heavenly Mother and helping people embrace and celebrate their worth and other people's worth. That's beautiful. And I, and I see that in both of you. And that's one of the reasons that I love that you are part of the Mormon Women Project as you know, part of our ethos is, yes, share women's stories and the breadth of what it means to be a faithful Latter-day Saint woman in the world, uh, but also to enact change from a grassroots level, right? That to not just look top down, but like, what can you do in your sphere of influence to bring about the change that you want? And, um, and so seeing that and, and having you guys be examples of that is really inspiring. And, um, and I love that, that, you're, that you're so visible in that because there is something, um, you know, particularly as women, when, when there's a historically that we're supposed to play small. And so when you see women be bold in that, um, I think it is important that we support each other and that we champion each other in that work. And, and we should also say like, so Beth and I just kind of laid down this kind of um, bold ways that we're doing these things. But at the same time, I think we should also acknowledge the insidious ways that the world's model exists, sneaks in. Yes. And even though you think like, wait a second, MacArthur is this woman who's done this and this and writes this book and does this and blah, 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 blah right? Like it sneaks in for me, even now, even still where I have to wrestle some of these um, world demons, right? They're not a divine model. And I think that understanding that that, at least in my experience, that there's very few people who this does not um, touch or that you have to, like you personally have to fight it out. Like I think that um, at least I want to acknowledge that I am not immune and that I think it's very normal and natural that no matter who you are, that, that this flavor touches your life. And you have to still, still find the oomph to lean into the truth. And so I did this art show called Heavenly Mother and the Wise Women. And one of the women, uh, I took 53 women who'd inspired me in my life and that I learned something from and a piece of wisdom. And I created a textile beaded piece. And one of the women was about nurturing your own soul. Because when she told me of what her life plan was, my immediate reaction was like, can, can you do that? Can, really? 
the fact that she was going to commute half a world away to begin her education and that her family was going to support this and that it was going to be hard on everybody and everybody knew it was going to be hard, but they decided that their mother's dream was worth it. And I sat there when she told me this and I just had this like, I didn't, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> right. And it was, and it was such a moment for me to think, of course, our heavenly parents want our souls to be developed, to be nurtured. Mm -hmm. And so that can look really different. It, like this woman's particular path was that she was going on for a PhD. You know, mine has been a different path. Someone else would have a different path. I mean, so I'm not saying there's one path that is the, the definition of development, but the truth that our heavenly parents want our souls to be just as nurtured and developed as anyone else's, our husbands, our colleagues, our bosses, whoever it is in the world, I think is, is it's, you can't overestimate that. And so for me, even though I've been on this path where I'm helping village women and I'm doing my own thing and I'm teaching my daughters, still, still my reaction when this woman told me that she was going to do this was for me to think, uh, uh, are you allowed to do that? Right? Is that, is that okay? And so to me, just that, that moment clarified for me that I still held within me this, this undercut um, from the world, that the world, I was still letting the world undercut my understanding of women's divinity, you know, that, um, that women's souls deserve to be invested in. And I think that that's an important thing, that if someone's listening to this, that they're not just like, oh, that there's no shame or there's no, um, there's no browbeating yourself for, for having this be part of your makeup. I think it's in all of us. And so I think having a really clear understanding that, that no matter who you are or what your personality is or what your situation is, that you still have to wrestle this, um, I think is, is important for people to acknowledge that it's, it's an ongoing wrestle. And I, I would say um, one of my favorite quotes in the book is by a BYU professor, um, religion professor, and he said, you are a perfect vision of Heavenly Mother. Your destiny is not counselorhood. Your destiny is Godhood. And then to me, it was like, wow, you know, like um, you're not just meant to be a supporting role. Like you, you are a God, like you said, a goddess in training or a goddess in the making. And that, that is your, that is, and of course, coming to God takes investing in yourself and cultivating and prioritizing and nurturing and developing. And it's a, um, so wonderful and so important. And, um, you know, I think you're right, MacArthur, so many of us in our generation and our mothers and grandmothers generations have this this less than perfect model inside of us. Um, but that's why MacArthur and I write children's books. Because <laughs> like, we want to raise a different generation. We are creating books um, that our girls grow up with learning about matriarchs and prophetesses and priestesses and, and heavenly mother and, and matri all this. This is just part of, of their spiritual life from the beginning. Um, so that hopefully, even though, you know, it's still this, these ideas are still swirling in the world, but hopefully, um, we will raise a generation of Latter-day Saint um, girls and boys who will turn into men and women who this is just deeply seated and rooted in their hearts and souls and in their beliefs. And um, they'll grow up differently. That's our hope. And here's, here's a concrete example. Okay. So my husband is not the least bit of a chauvinist, not a bit. I mean, please, I married well, <laughs> but 
at the same time, all of a sudden, one day I looked around and realized that we had decided to spend lots and lots of money on his professional development, right? Somehow with this idea that professional development to help you do better at your job was worth investing in. But we as a family had not spent anything in my professional development. And if my professional development at that moment of time was being a full-time mom, it is worth professional development. And so I had this moment of like, wait a second. Like, why do we think that professional development, investing in someone's development is only tied to financial gain? That somehow that justified a family expense versus every person's soul is worth developing. And so if you want to take a executive finance class and I want to take a love and logic class or whatever it happens to be, I want to take art classes. I want to take a book class. I mean, whatever it is, right? It's not, it's not about the subject itself. It's about this idea that all of us are on a soul development journey and all of us deserve investment. That's so great. And such a, a, slight shift and an important shift in how we um, traditionally think about these things. And I really appreciate that both of you express that, that, that we're doing this imperfectly and that this is really hard Absolutely. and that, right. And that we are talking about not just centuries, but millennia of oppression that we are trying to work through and to, and to counter. And that that takes a lot of work. And part of that work is even, examining our own internalized misogyny and to and you know for in this work uh that i have been trying to do of of living a life of equality and treating all humans with dignity is that is to understand the things that i have internalized and and how i and i think you know to touch again on the black lives matter you know like there's this call right now to look at see how our own internalized um, racism or how our biases, implicit biases show up. And, you know, and that work also needs to be done around gender differences of, of what that looks like, because I do see that um, in our society that we have language and, and a way to point out when we say when a man is being um, oppressive or, or misogynistic, but we, we don't have quite that same skill or that same example around how we as women do it to each other. Or do it to ourselves. Yeah, or even do it to ourselves. Like, right? No one had done this to me except me, mm -hmm. right? No one had created that, in, that inequity except me. Yeah. And so I think, like, from my standpoint, I've always been one that believes in celebrating the goodness and the truth more than, um, more than worrying about what has happened in the past. Yeah. Right. Because for me personally, if I spend too much time there, it doesn't do me any good. And so I benefit when I think about what are divine truths and what do those truths look like when they're applied to my life. And when I do my own digging in in my own sphere, and I'm not even talking like my own sphere, like my husband and family, I'm like me. <laughs> if I just dig yeah. into my own immediate sphere, there's plenty of stuff in there yeah. that shouldn't be there. And once, for me, once I can live into my own truth, then, then it flows out from there, right? Because I also think truth, truth lived is, is like power flowing. Like divine power just flows out when you can live with the, 
the the truths that you know. And so I think that's why I thought it was important because we're talking about, I mean, you asked us a question about like how we're doing that. And it's a great question, but I think a real question is also just this acknowledgement of, of we're all works in progress, right? Uh, well, maybe nobody else's. My life is a work in progress. <laughs> and so having that kind of sense of, of humanity and frailty and understanding that, that, you know, there's, there's work I got to do. Yeah. And, and two, bringing in this knowledge that we have a heavenly mother, then as I do this work, I am reminded of how compassion is such an important part of this work that we meet ourselves with compassion as we do this and not with further shame and, and, and tearing down and that how, and I, because I, I do think of, of, you know, often women are attributed with the, with nurturing as a divine characteristic. And, and I know that that's problematic language and that, and, you know, that there could be a master narrative in that. I can say for me personally that I've really struggled around that and that I did have for my own journey had um, a really inspired moment when I realized that nurturing didn't just mean homemaker or playing small and that that's in no way to to diminish those roles those are very important roles it was but Mark MacArthur it's like what you were saying that there was more to it than than just that is that nurturing was to make to help things grow and right and so then that really was a, a fundamental shift for me when I realized oh my part of my divine charge as a woman is to help whatever I come into contact with grow. So know? my job at my company was business development. Yeah, right, exactly. And so I didn't get married or have biological children until much later. And so my nurturing was to nurture my business. Yeah. Right, and it was my job to grow it. And I used to remember and, and, um, and hear that about women being nurturers divinely so, and I meant, amen. Look at me go. Right? <laughs> exactly. Whatever I go to Right? Yeah. That's a beautiful, to think of a nurturer as someone who grows, that's, that helps things grow. That's, that's a beautiful, that's an expansive, expansive and empowering use of that term. It's, it's gorgeous. And yeah. I think nurturing also means tending to, right? Yeah. And you can tend to things, people, places in a, in a myriad of ways, right? I think it's beautiful. And Liz, I would just give a huge shout out and an applause to the Mormon Women Project because you have done this for the last decade too, right? I mean, just sharing yeah. all these stories of women who work in such different spaces and in such different causes and in such different life experience. And it's, um, it's been really beautiful to crack That's open. taken some nurturing. Yes, it has. <laughs> it has. On multiple had, levels. <laughs> but, but, you know, this, this very narrow uh, vision of what the world used to have of Mormon women, and now you've created this platform and this, date, this reservoir of these fascinating stories and, of women who have nurtured many things in, in many different ways, and it's beautiful. And I have to tell you really quick, um, I have an 11-year-old neighbor down, a few houses down. His name is Dylan. And um, he, for his class, had to write about um, somebody in our community who was doing something to make a difference. And um, he Googled me, and um, he came across the Mormon Women Project. And um, he's a cute little kid. And his family's not religious at all. But um, he comes over, he's like, 
the Mormon Women Project is so cool. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! This is so amazing. Yeah, he's like, I love it. Like your your story is awesome, but there's some other cool stuff too. And like he was, his mom said that like he'll get on the Mormon Women Project just to check things out. Awesome. And so, so um, know that you have fans, the right? Brand of eleven year old boy. And you know what? The he was um, the one one was selected from the school to go onto the county level, and he was the runner up. He was so close. Ah! <laughs> so close but um but yeah look out for dylan if he's, caught, he's okay he's caught. i will I will. oh i love this and then so yeah that's one funny story and then one other funny story comes to mind really quick um but um so for many years here in richmond i worked for a nonprofit called fit for kids and we did all sorts of programming to help kids live healthier lives to thrive and and uh, but i worked part-time and um oftentimes when we were at staff meetings and we'd be um, kind of distributing assignments for who's going to take this or do that or whatever. And, and um, our CEO would always say, well, Bethany might not be able to do that because, um, you know, in addition to this job, she's busy redefining God. So could we, so, so she gets to skip that meeting or like she doesn't have to go to the activity because she's, she's got something big on her plate. You know, that whole redefining God thing, like let's give her some, let's give her some slack. Like, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Like talk about a way of, of, um, being what I call like a living testimony, right? The, the, I think it's just such a beautiful example, those two stories of you just being you in the world and, mm -hmm. and show, you know, and, and your faith is just so prevalent and your beliefs so prevalent that, that yeah, it's there's, such there's, a beautiful living testimony. Sometimes it's felt like we had to prove that stepping into the world was divinely inspired, not mm -hmm. despite our faith. And I think it's these stories are so powerfully wonderful to show how the power of um, doing divine work in the world is not just nice, but necessary. And that is absolutely a way of serving and choosing God. Yeah, and I, and I really appreciate too the, this, because I know in my own ways as, as I've tried to make Heavenly Mother more present in my own personal journey, but also um, part of my worship, which means within my church services, is that sometimes I get either a direct response or I interpret an energy as, oh, but if you're, if you're focusing so much on Heavenly Mother, then aren't you kind of undermining or devaluing Heavenly Father or Jesus Christ. And, and what I have found is that my, that that doesn't happen at all. In fact, the more that I understand her, the richer those relationships are. And that it's because I have such rich relationships with them that mm -hmm. I, that I feel the longing for her, right? Like I know. Well, and you'd think yeah. about, so think about this. If there was a child who had grown up with just their father, and then they hit 18 and realized they also had a mother and wanted to spend time and energy with that mother, that in no way takes away from the 18 years that she spent loving her father or interacting with her father, being loved by her father. I think the father and the daughter and the mother would all agree it was about balance. Yeah. It was about unity. And so if we think about it just in those simple of terms, it in no way denigrates Heavenly Father or Jesus to add Heavenly Mother into this divine mix of love, right? And that it actually makes a more complete family. And I think that there's, there's nothing to fill. Heavenly Father is a God. 
he's not going to feel threatened by this, right? I mean, I think it's... <laughs> you know, I have the same response when people say that, like, well, God's, you know, Heavenly Father's protecting Heavenly Mother, and that's why we don't talk about her. They don't want her name to be used in vain. Like, it, like this thing. I'm like, she's a god. I, I think she's, I think she's got it. <laughs> you know, like... She's not um, fragile. Fragile is not a word that yeah, we'd associate with a goddess, right? Yeah. No, no, no. So, so I think she's okay. Um, I want to be respectful of time. And so um, we could talk we wrap up, yes. yeah, right. Is um, so just if I may have just a few more minutes, two things. One is I do, I, there's two practices that I have been doing that I thought of when you asked in the book, you know, how are you doing this in your worship? And one of the things that I have been very conscious of doing is that it, you know, we have language in our, in our culture around, I'm trying to be like my heavenly father or like trying to be that, that I have intentionally said, I'm trying to be like my heavenly mother. Um, because you know, the, the proclamation of the family talks about that, that our gender is eternal. And so if, if that is true, then I will never be like my heavenly father. I will be like my heavenly mother. And so, you know, having that. I don't think that's quite true, Liz. Yeah. So, no, because I have traits of my father, my earthly father. Sure. Right. So when I talk about growing up to be like someone, uh, I'm a mix. I'm a mix of my father and my mother, right? And so there's ways I'm way more like my father in X, Y, Z and way more like my mother this. And so at least from my standpoint, you grow up to be like your heavenly parents, mm -hmm. right? And maybe you're more like this on one side and more like this on the other side, but you absolutely can be in my mind, be like both, right? And that, but if you've only been thinking heavenly father, then obviously you're missing out on the other side, right? So sorry, I didn't mean to, to undercut. No, I, mean, I actually but... appreciate that because, because you, you make a very good point. And even as you were saying that, I was like, oh, actually the response is I'm trying to be like my heavenly parents. Because there yes. are, you know. But, but, I, but I support you in the heavenly mother too. Right? Because right, let's just get that language yeah, just in for, for, for balance, you know, for just a yeah. little bit of balance. Where, and I mean, like even just physically, like we will never grow up to be like heavenly father, you know. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think, I, I think interchanging those, I'm striving to be like Jesus. I'm, you know, trying to emulate Heavenly Mother. Like, I want to be like my Heavenly Parents. You know, like, maybe like mixing all of those godly terms. <laughs> yeah, in, right? Like, like let's do. And there right. will, and actually there will be certain traits where I'm like, no, I feel like this is something I'm learning from my Heavenly Mother. And, or like, there are traits where I'm like, no, this is about developing this Christ-like attribute. Right. You know, and, and recognize one of our artists actually talked about how she felt like Heavenly Mother had been present at the birth of her and her twins, mm -hmm. you know, where she actually said, Heavenly Father, I need my mother. Can you please send my mother to me? Right. And I think in that kind of instance, um, she was not disrespecting her father to ask for her mother. Right. Yeah. Just like if I said to my earthly father, like, Dad, you're great, but I really want to talk to mom. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, he went. He wouldn't take that her uh, that badly, you know. He'd be like, "Yeah, I like talking to your mom too, right?" Like, <laughs> yeah, right. So, and then the other practice that I have, and I and this has ignited some really, actually, lovely conversations, is in the temple recommend questioning. Um, you know, the question is like, "Do you believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost?" And I say, "Yes," and in a heavenly mother. 
and 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 like the most lovely responses every time like i get anything from like oh yeah me too or like right you know like you know never once have i i always expect somebody to be like what but no i've always been met with like yes <laughs> that's be uh, uh, thank you that is a wonderful wonderful tip a wonderful wonderful tip and i i hope my deep 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 desire is that um, through this ongoing revelation, through our books, through our work, through all the work that everyone is doing, is that someday Heavenly Mother will be with us in the temple. That is my hope. Mm, yeah. That that would be no, Heavenly Mother needs to be with us. Always. Yes. Everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like Heavenly Mother needs to be in primary. Heavenly Mother needs to be in young women's. Heavenly Mother needs to be in young men's. Like it's... In Elder's Quorum. Elder's Quorum. So, in fact, the prophet who spoke the most about Heavenly Mother in particular, not just Heavenly Parents, was Spencer W. Kimball. Hmm. And his earthly mother died when he was young. And we don't know if this is why he then spoke more or thought more about it. But to me, it makes sense, you know, that someone who was missing an earthly nurturing figure um, would have reached for the, the mother that he could reach with this heavenly mother. And so I'm sure in elders quorum, there have been men who wanted their mother. George Floyd wanted his mother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there is power in a mother's love. Thank you both of you for spending this time with me and for giving us this beautiful gift of a book. The really boy's God is coming. Do you know this? I, so I saw this. So one of my questions, I know we're wrapping up, but one of my questions was going to be, why all these girls? Do you ever think of children? I mean, and don't get me wrong. I'm like, let's just keep with the girls. But then when I saw the boys guide, I was very excited about this. So I'm happy to hear that there is a boy. So is it not yet ready? Or can, uh, I can see you can order it now. That, that's you what can, we're doing after this call, Liz, is we're, we're, <laughs> we're finishing up after this. Okay, go. well, let's wrap up so you can let's avoid their work. You can reorder it now. Yeah. Um, it has been laid out by the designer, but it needs um, some final tuning as, um, as only Bethany Brady can do. And okay. so um, she's on the hook for that. And, um, and then we hope to have it this fall. We've done the girl's guide separate than doing just kind of a children's one because there are some very key truths in there. They're actually only true for girls. And yeah. we wanted girls to have that moment. And then we got a very compelling email from a mother of five boys who said, wait a second, my <laughs> boys need to know this too. too. And uh, in the interest of having men out there who I want to marry my daughter, yes, I thought that we should probably do a boy's guide too. And I, and I love that. Yeah. And Martin Polito is teaming up with us. So um, Martin Polito, who is one of the authors. Oh, that you quote in the book. Yes, yes. Yeah. And he so Martin and I author. and Bethany are writing that. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. But we want to be clear that our Girls Who Choose God's books are about girls, but they're for boys. They're for both. Totally. The title sometimes makes things people that they shouldn't be for boys, but, but I deliberately give them to boys. You know, when I was the primary president, I would always give this as a gift because, you know, girls learn about Nephi and Moses and, and Jeremiah, you know, all these wonderful boys. Um, then the boys also need to learn the- Yeah, well, it's part of gender literacy, right? right. So like, absolutely. 
Right, right. And to grow up thinking of girls as their spiritual equals. So yeah. from the get-go, we've thought that, you know, our, our books up until this point have been for both. The Girls' Guide was a special little treat for, for girls, and, um, but the Boys' Guide is coming, and then who knows next. Thank you to MacArthur and Bethany for this rich conversation, and thank you to you for listening. I encourage you to pick up your own copy of A Girl's Guide to Heavenly Mother, published by D Street Press. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.